You're listening to a podcast from Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, whose mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. But just, just the other night, we read about how they're at the Magician's Island. And as they're on the Magician's Island, they, uh, they, they come to this like unseen thing, and they have this, this interaction, and, and they, um, they ask Lucy, who is the one girl in the whole barrage of people on the Dawn Treader, that she would go upstairs and find the magician's book to read a spell. Read a spell that would make the invisible things become visible again, and then everything could be happy. And so she goes upstairs, and she finds the book, and she's reading through it, and she reads the spell, and then the duffel pods, is what they become called, become visible again. And so in the midst of that, she, she sees and she meets the magician, and they have this great meal and conversation, and then they look out the window, and as they're looking out the window, she, she sees something on the grass. She's not really sure what it is, and to her mind, it looks like mushrooms, is what she thinks. But then as she continues to pay closer attention, she realizes that these aren't actually mushrooms. These are some sort of odd-looking creature. And it turns out that these are actually the duffel pods. See, as she continued to look at it a little more intently, she got a different perspective, and she got to see more clearly what these things were. Uh, And so as, as I've been reading Narnia again with my son, I think that I've been able to see things a little more clearly as well. See, as I read them as a kid, I just loved the, the great story and the conflict and the, the fun adventures that they went on. But now as I'm going back and looking at them again, I see them completely differently. I have a new perspective because of where I am in life. The story hasn't changed at all. The words are the exact same as they were when I read them 20 years ago. But the way that I'm able to see what it means is different now. And it's different in an amazing way. My perspective has changed. So as we have been walking along in the book of John, we have been uh, now come to the point where Jesus is on trial. And as he is on trial, there are going to be some things happening that seem a little odd. Particularly, um, as we have titled this sermon, Kingdom Living. What, what does it mean to have kingdom living as we come to this awkward and weird spot in the story where Jesus is on trial. And so as we look at the text today, we are going to see that kingdom living requires a kingdom perspective. That kingdom living requires a kingdom perspective. So if you will open up your, your Bibles with you that you have with you today, or power up your phone, or take a look at the words on the screen, we are going to be reading from John chapter 18, verses 28 through 40 this morning. And if you will stand with me in in honor of God's word as we read. John, chapter 18, starting in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? 
They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or do others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. You may be seated. So as we come to this point in the story, there's a little bit of a gap that we need to briefly fill in. As Josh ended last week in chapter 17, he was talking about a prayer that Jesus prayed over his disciples and how that prayer applies to us who are God's people even today in this moment. But then after that, there was a conflict that happened. Jesus went to the garden to pray, and as he was in the garden, his betrayer Judas came with a a brigade of Roman soldiers and, and of the priests to arrest Jesus. And as he was there to arrest him, there was a conflict as Peter rose up to defend his, um, his rabbi, and he chopped off one of the guy's ears. And Jesus had to be like, no, 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 let's, we're not doing that here, and have him put away his sword and heal the man, and then he was taken away. And as he was taken away, he was taken before the high priest. And as he was at the high priest, they were asking him to defend himself. And what were these charges that were against him? And, and he spoke the words, and then they smacked him in the face because they thought he was being disrespectful to the high priest. And then all that has happened, and now we are here as Jesus is brought from the house of the high priest to stand before the governor, Pontius Pilate. <clears throat> and as we look at this story we're going to see that kingdom living requires a kingdom perspective. And the first thing that it requires is that a kingdom kingdom perspective on the Christ and who the Christ is. See, a kingdom perspective on Christ sees that Christ is king. Christ is not just some ordinary man that did some great things. Christ is not just some guy who wandered the earth and had some nice people following him and taught them some good moral truths, taught them how to be better people or how to be nice to others, somebody who started a political revolution to change the way that Jerusalem was going to be governed. Christ is king. As it says in verses 33 through 35, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, 
or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? See, the people that Jesus came down to to save, that Jesus came down to interact with and reconcile and bring hope and bring peace, didn't see Jesus for who he truly was. They saw him as this rabble-rouser that was going to challenge their authority and challenge their place in the structure that they had and the hierarchy that they had set up within the Jewish religion. That they would have their place taken as authority removed. So then what they do is they take, them, they take him to the, the authority of the, the Roman government in the area. See, the Jews had already been conquered once before. They'd been conquered by Rome, and now they were, they were under this dual authority of what they had within their religion and what the government structure was that around them. And so they, they couldn't do what they wanted with Jesus on their own authority, so they had to take him to another authority, and they took him to the Roman governor. And then the governor comes before him, and, and there's no doubt that this man knew some of what was going on and what Jesus was about. There's no doubt that this man had heard the rumors about what Jesus had been doing, about how he had been going about and having these conversations, and how he had been feeding and healing and and bringing back to life that what was dead. And so he asks him, are you a king? And Christ answers with a question, as Jesus normally does, is that what you say that I am? Or has somebody else told you that about me? See, Jesus is clear, but he's also challenging him to make a a choice on his own. Challenging him to to figure out where is his perspective coming from. Is the perspective of Pilate that Jesus is a king coming from the words of the crowd that have brought him to him? Or is it coming from his own observation of what has been taking place all around him? We, in our society, may not understand much about kings, There aren't really many left in our time, right? The most popular monarchy that there is in in the world is the Queen of England. She's been sitting on that throne for a really long time. But the reality of the way that the world works now is that even somebody who is a monarch, a king or a queen, currently in today's time, they are more looked of as like a figurehead. Somebody who's not actually the ultimate authority in the situation anymore. They can have some influence on the political structure of the environment. They can maybe strong-arm the prime minister, or they can influence the House of Parliament. But they're not seen as a true king and what a king was originally. And if we do see somebody who actually acts like a king, we see them as a dictator, right? We see that as a bad thing. We see that as horrible. Because the way that that authority in this time has, has taken root is for the interest of the own individual who holds all the authority. It's not for the interest of the greater plan that God has. A kingdom perspective on Christ sees Christ as a king. Do you see Christ as a king? Do you see Christ as the king in your life? Or do you see him as a figurehead that can maybe just push on you a little bit when you want him to? Is Christ somebody that might try to just like strong arm you to stop doing this, this one thing that you know is bad for you, but you just kind of enjoy anyways? 
Or is Christ an ultimate authority that can rebuke you and tell you no and you have to listen? Is Christ a king in your life? Or is Christ just some other person that is speaking into your ear? A kingdom perspective sees Christ as a king. But not only does it see Christ as a king, but that that Christ is lifted up. Verses 31 through 32 say, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus said, spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. See, the irony in this interaction is that the, the Jews had probably already had some conversations with Pilate, and they were probably pretty confident that Pilate was going to do what they wanted them to do as they brought Jesus before him. That's why some Roman guards were with them when they arrested Jesus. And then Pilate's like, wait a minute, um, I'm just going to flip this around, and I, don't, I think that you should just do it yourselves, right? Um, I'm not going to be the one to do this. You should, you should take the authority, and you should judge him yourself. But see, the problem with that is that the Jews, the Jews wanted Jesus dead. They didn't just want him locked up. They didn't just want him to get kicked out of Jerusalem or to go somewhere else. They wanted him dead. And by the authority structure that was now in place because of Roman rule, they were not allowed to enforce capital punishment. They were no longer allowed to do that. Even though within their own religious law, it would have been appropriate to enforce capital punishment for certain offenses, particularly blasphemy, which is the charge that the Jews were trying to bring against Jesus. As Jesus referred to himself as I am, as God incarnate, they saw that as blasphemous, and so they wanted to kill him. But because they were under the rule of the Roman authority, they no longer had the right to kill somebody to enforce capital punishment, because the Romans held that tightly in their grasp. That was something they held for themselves to be able to inflict that sort of punishment, to be able to inflict that sort of judgment, to be able to inflict that sort of pain on somebody. See, the Jews, if they had actually been able to, to, to kill Jesus the way that they wanted to kill Jesus, it would not have been the way that the scriptures had talked about how the Messiah would be killed. See, the punishment for blasphemy would be stoning. It would be to take them out of the city for all of the authority figures to grab a rock and to pelt the man or the woman with a rock until they were dead and buried in a pile of stones until they were fully covered up and unable to be seen anymore, until they were looked down upon. But that wasn't the fate that the Messiah was to have. The people of the world were not to look down upon the Messiah. They were to look up. They were to lift their heads and see him held high. And so, as the scriptures had said, the Son of Man would be lifted on high. Jesus would have to die on a cross to be lifted on high. And the only authority that could hang him on a cross was the Roman authority. That was their, like, best way to kill somebody because it is ridiculously painful. It takes a long time to die on a cross. You are beaten. You have spikes driven through you. You are are hung up in the air. 
And you would think that you might die from bleeding out or from the blood, but what really you die from is asphyxiation. You can't breathe anymore. You get so tired from hanging up there that your muscles give out and you suffocate to death. How gruesome of a death that would be. But see, there's a twist in this. In the midst of that, he's not just lifted up high to die, but he's lifted up high for us to look upon him and see the one who provided the ultimate sacrifice for us. The ultimate source of strength, the ultimate source of freedom is from the one who is lifted on high. The strength that we get is from the Christ who died in this way. A kingdom perspective on Christ is what we need for kingdom living. That he is a king and that he is a king that was lifted on high to die on the cross. Not only do we need to have a kingdom perspective on Christ, but we need to have a kingdom perspective on the world. This environment that we find ourselves in, this place that we live, do you see it with a kingdom perspective? Or do you just see it as the world around you and you just take it for granted? You just roll with the punches and see what happens. See, a kingdom perspective on the world sees that the world is backwards. The world is not the way that it should be. So it says in verses 28 through 30, Then they led Jesus from the house to Caiaphas, to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. See, this is, this is weird. They arrest Jesus, and then they take him to the high authority in the land to, to get a judgment. But they're unwilling to even go into that authority figure's house, right? It's a little awkward. Like, say you want to go and take somebody to the police station to get them arrested, but you are unwilling to walk in the front doors of the police station to deliver them. You just stand outside the front doors and yell for the chief of police and say, Hey, I got the guy. Come over here and get him. Lock him up for me. No, that's not what they did. They, they came and they didn't even want to go inside the house of Pilate because they were worried about being defiled. See, they were worried about their traditions. And their traditions said that they could not enter the house of a Gentile during this holy festival because that would make them unclean. And if they were unclean, then they couldn't participate in this festival of the unleavened bread and the Passover. They couldn't eat this great meal and they couldn't celebrate. So they were worried about being defiled so that they could continue to participate in the Passover, this week-long celebration of the amazing thing that God did to deliver his people out of bondage in Egypt. How they had painted the doorposts with blood and they had eaten the sacrificial meal and then God covered his people and he judged their enemy and he brought them out and delivered them. They wanted to observe that memory and that tradition. But there's, there's some irony here, you see. They were so set on observing the Passover meal and the Passover festival that they were willing to hand over the Passover lamb to die. 
They were willing to hand over the Son of Man in order to hold to their traditions. They did not see what was right in front of them. It's backwards. And not only that, they brought before him before Pilate and they said, if he wasn't doing evil, we would, we would not have brought him to you. Now think about it. Of what we have walked through in the scriptures or what you have known about Jesus, was there any evil in this man? Healing, healing the sick, is that evil? Bringing to life that what was dead, is that evil? Bringing hope where there was none. Was that evil? See, it's backwards. They're seeing the purest, most loving, most compassionate, most amazing person to ever live because this was God, and they're calling him evil because it is challenging their authority structure. It is challenging their place of power in the midst of all of this. It makes me think of... um, when I was a kid, I would wake up in the morning and I would watch cartoons before school with my younger brother. And at the time, um, Darkwing Duck was on. I don't know any Darkwing Duck fans out there. There was this one episode where Darkwing Duck travels to a different world. And as he's in this different world, he gets to take his motorcycle. It's like his cool thing that he rides around town and rescues people on. But this world that he's in is backwards. See, the roads aren't made of concrete. The roads are made of rubber. And the tires on their vehicles aren't made of rubber, they're made of stone. And they're not round, they're blocks, and this is all a bit backwards. And so he has to do this race to, uh, to win, to go back in time to where he's from, or to, to set the victory. And he's like, yeah, I got the upper hand here, I got the way a motorcycle is actually supposed to look, and it's, it's going to be easy. But then as he goes to have the race, he finds his motorcycle, and he's highly disappointed. Because the people in the time have found it for him, and they're like, oh, no, this isn't going to work. You, you need our technology. And so they swapped out his tires that we would normally see, and they put these square block tires on it to drive around the road and have this race. And he, he's just mind-blown because of the backwards way in which they are seeing the world. They're thinking that they're doing this great thing for him, that they're helping him out, and that they're going to be able to win the victory. But it's upside down. It's not the way that they would expect it to be. That's a lot like the world that we're living in right now. The world is backwards in a lot of ways. Having a kingdom perspective sees the backwardness of what is going on in the world at times. But not only that, a kingdom perspective on the world sees that the world in which we live is enemy territory. If you are a child of the king, you are in enemy territory. Verse 36 says, Jesus answered Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Christ came to bring a kingdom into this world, but this world does not exist in his kingdom right now. 
See, I don't know, some of us may have been around when we walked through the book of Ephesians, but if not, you, you can take a look, and Ephesians says in the opening chapters that the ultimate authority at this time in this world, the, the prince of this world, is the prince of darkness. It is the prince of the powers of the air. It is Satan. So if Satan is currently the ruler of this world, the great enemy, then this is enemy territory if you are following after the king. Do you have that perspective? Do you see that there are things going on in this world that are backwards and contrary to the way that God has organized his people? Do you see things going on in this world that are backwards and and just twisted and messed up from the way that God is calling us as his people to live and to act and to interact with one another? See, if if this was an enemy territory, then the way that we are called to live as Christians would not be so backwards and so contrary to the way that the world works. See, there are, are stories that you hear every now and again of somebody who does amazing things. And we celebrate those stories. Somebody who charges into a burning building to save a child, or, or Mother Teresa, or... or um, or Gandhi, or or all these things, and we celebrate them. And why do we celebrate them? Because they are doing something that is so backwards from what you would expect in this self-seeking time that we have. How weird is it for somebody to charge into a burning building to save somebody when the majority of our society thinks just of themselves? How weird is it for a man to sit in prison for decades because of his color, of his skin and his race. And then when he gets out, he does not rally all of the multitudes of people of his own color in that country to overthrow the authority that put him in prison, but he calls for peace. He understood that he was living in enemy territory and that he had to do things a little differently. A kingdom perspective on the world sees the world as backwards and as enemy territory. And as we are in enemy territory, we should expect enemy attacks. Now, I don't want to hyper-spiritualize it, but that means that there is a warfare taking on around us. That, that we are going to be pressed upon to give up what we believe. We are going to be pressed upon to turn our back on the God who saves in order to have some comforts in the world or to not be judged, or to not experience pain, or affliction, or heartache, or all these different things. There is a a battle that is taking place because we are in enemy territory. But not only does kingdom living require a kingdom perspective on Christ and on the world, it requires a kingdom perspective on the truth. See, the truth in our time that we are in over the last several years has become a little fluid, you might say. Whoever's in authority might say, well, I don't like your truth, so I'm going to spin it to be a different truth. Or I'm just going to flat out call it a lie, right? The, the popular saying now is fake news, right? I don't like that, so it's fake news. It's not real. Um, Sometimes it is fake news. I don't know. Sometimes it's real. But the, that's, that's the, the way that we have set things up currently is that if I don't like something, whether it's true or not, I could just call it out as fake. 
But a kingdom perspective on truth sees that truth is recognizable. Verse 37 says, Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. See, Jesus came into the world for a specific purpose. He came into the world to bear witness about the truth. The truth of who God is, what he was willing and going to do for his people, and what that called people to do in response to that. And not only did he come to bear witness to the truth, because Jesus was God incarnate, Jesus himself was the truth. He was the standard of truth. As it says earlier in John, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. To follow after him is to walk in that truth. So that everyone who is of the truth listens to Jesus' voice. So what what does it mean to be of the truth? To be of the truth is to be a child of God. To be of the truth is to be somebody who has been reconciled to this almighty creator and has a relationship with him and follows after him. To be of the truth is to listen and to understand and to discern the voices that are all around you. It's recognizable. Now, how, how many of us have smartphones in here? Quite a bit, right? There's this cool feature, right? Hey, Siri. Hmm? See, Siri, Siri's going to talk to me. Because Siri can recognize my voice. I have trained Siri to understand my voice, but it won't listen to all of you. If you try and talk to my phone, it's not going to listen to you the way it's going to listen to me. Or perhaps you have an Alexa at home or a Google Home Mini or any other sort of cool wireless device. You train it to hear your voice so that when you call out from the other room, hey, Google, or hey, Alexa, it responds and says, how can I help you? What can I do? It recognizes your voice because you have trained it to hear your voice. See, the truth is, is like that as well. The truth is recognizable but you need to train your ear to hear the truth. You need to train your mind to recognize the truth. And what is the clearest way that God has given us to recognize truth? It is through the scriptures. It is through the word of God that he has given us here that we are able to understand what he has called and what he has labeled and what he has definitively said as truth. Now, there are a lot of words in this text, and it can take a lot of time to read through it and can take a lot of times of reading through it to kind of work through it all. But this is the standard of truth that God has given to his people. And in order to recognize that truth, we're called to be in that truth. That means spending time in the Word of God. That means reading our Bibles, to be able to discern the voices that are all around us, to be able to discern the truth that is being thrown at us, to see if that is actually truth. (laughs) 
There was a, a study recently, I, I saw a video that was posted about the, the Center for Bible Institute, I think is what did it. They, they did this study and they pooled like 80,000 people from the age of 8 to 80, asking them different things about uh, their Bible reading habits. And they got back the data and what they found was something that they weren't even looking for that was like off the charts cool. As they were looking through the data, they found, and they asked people how often they read their Bibles. And reading the scriptures, the, if you read it one time a week, one time a week, so that could be like this morning, we said, open up your Bibles as we are going to read through the book of John, and we go through this text. That could be somebody's one time a week. There was negligible influence on an individual's life from spending one moment a week in the scriptures. So they went on, and, and two moments a week. What if you spend two, two days a week reading the Bible? Same thing. Negligible change. Three days a week, they said there was like, boop, there's a heartbeat. Like, something happened, but then it just went back to normal, the way things were, and there wasn't really any change. But when people spent four days a week in the scriptures, there was an astronomical change. Boom, it just skyrocketed. And the, the things that they observed, that the feedback they were given, is that people felt, in the percentages, 30% less lonely. They felt more connected. They felt more connected to God. They felt more connected to other people. The percentage of struggles that they had with things like pornography or alcoholism drastically dropped, up to 60% decrease in their struggles with those things. Their feelings of stagnation in their relationship with God dropped by 50%. But then on the flip side, their, their desire and their confidence to evangelize and share God's word jumped 200%. Just from spending four days reading God's word. You can't recognize this truth. This truth can't have an impact and an effect on your life and on your heart and on your mind if you're just reading it one day a week. If you, if you take this study, even as something that is valid, even two or three days a week are barely going to have any impact. But a regular rhythm of spending time in the Word of God is going to change you because God's Word is powerful and it is mighty and it will revolutionize who you are. A kingdom, to live in a kingdom way requires a kingdom perspective on the truth. And to recognize that truth, we need to spend time in the truth. But not only that, the truth is going to be questioned. The first part of verse 38 says, in Pilate's response to, to, to Jesus' saying this about truth, Pilate said to him, what is truth? Truth? Really? You're brought before me here by your own people to be executed, and you're talking to me about truth? What is truth? What is the validity of truth? Why should I care about truth? Don't we, don't we have that a lot in our lives sometimes? Personally, or the interactions and relationships that we have? We get faced with something that is concrete and undeniable 
and we walk the other way. Saying that has no value. I don't, I don't believe that, or I don't like the way that makes me feel. That's, that's uncomfortable. Uh, that's, that's too difficult to, to face or address. And so we walk away and we dismiss it. We question it. We write it off. See, in the midst of this trial that Jesus is on, Jesus is trying to evangelize Pilate. Jesus is confronting him with who he is, showing him the differences between his kingdom and the kingdom of this world, and he's telling them what truth is, and then he's saying to him what it looks like to walk in that truth. And so Pilate at the end here, as he tries to dismiss this question, he's, he's saying, well, what, what is truth? What influence should that have on my life? Pilate is faced with a decision. Do I accept what Jesus is saying? That there is an ultimate truth and that that truth is this person? Or do I dismiss it and walk away and just do what I want? Every one of us in this room has been faced with that reality. To some degree or another, you are faced with a questioning. A questioning of who Jesus is. A questioning of what he has done. A questioning of what level of influence and authority you're going to have, let him have, in and on your life. Are you going to take the proper perspective of letting him take control of who you are? Or are you just going to question him and walk away because it's uncomfortable? Because you already have a plan in your mind of what you're going to do next or what the next few years have in mind or the sandwich you're going to eat 10 minutes later, and so you just turn around and you dismiss it. You put it off and say, well, I, maybe I'll think about that a little bit more and I'll ponder over it. I'll come back to it in a bit. Kingdom living requires a kingdom perspective on who the Christ is, on the world that we live in, and on what truth is. So, you know, that's a lot of information to take in. And it's important, and it's good. But as we end, there's this weird scenario that is ultimately hopeful. Verses 38 through 40, the rest of it say, After Pilate had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, this man Jesus. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas! Now Barabbas was a robber. A robber. To get a full understanding of Barabbas and who he was, you kind of have to look across all the Gospels because they use different descriptive words on who this man was. He's labeled a robber, an insurrectionist, a murderer, somebody who committed treason, somebody who engaged in guerrilla warfare, a terrorist. They chose this man to be released over the spotless Jesus. How crazy is that? But how ultimately beautiful that is too. And do you want to know why? Because that is the gospel, people. 
That is what Jesus is willing to do, and that is what Jesus was going to do for every single one of us if we would be willing to accept it. He took the place of a murderous robber so that his blood would be shed instead of his, so that that man could go free and Jesus would be condemned to die. That is mind-blowing. Amen? Now, you may not be a robber. You may not be a murderer. You may not be a terrorist. But perhaps you struggle with control. Perhaps you struggle with anger or addiction or violence or shame or fear of the world. Any and every one of those Jesus came to set you free from. When Jesus went and he hung on the cross, he did it so that we could come before the cross and we could lay all of our burdens down. All of our failures, all of our addictions, all of our shame, all of our shortcomings. And we could look up to the one who is lifted high and find forgiveness and honor and redemption in the blood of the Son of Man that was slain on our behalf. So as we wrap up today, we get an opportunity to respond to that amazing truth, to remember that amazing sacrifice that was made on our behalf. And so if you, if you are a believer, if you have professed faith in, in Jesus and following after him, we invite you to come to the tables, to take the bread that is a symbol of this body that was beaten and broken on our behalf, and to dip it in the wine or the juice that is a symbol of the blood that flowed out from him to cover all of the dirtiness that we are covered in. Or even if this message this morning has, has struck you in a way that God is pulling on your heart, we invite you to come to the tables and to repent, to turn to Jesus and trust and in faith that you may walk and find salvation in him. Let's pray. God, what, a, what an amazing story this is. That it is true. That it is not um, just some made-up fairy tale but that these events really happened. And in the midst of a ridiculous trial uh, where you were being brought to die, that you still had the perspective of setting the captives free, that releasing people from bondage to have a relationship with you was your ultimate aim. God, let us take hope in that. Let us find comfort in that. May your grace wash over and clean us as we come and fall before your feet at the throne of the King. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please visit us at www.redseachurch.org or contact us at info at redseachurch.org.